Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey friends, welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. This is the weekly highlight reel of videos that I have put out on YouTube. So in case you don't know, you can go over to YouTube and watch all of my videos. The channel is History and Coffee, and you can just search for my name as well, Heather Tesco, History and Coffee, and you will get it. And you can subscribe there. Thank you to the many people who already subscribe. And then what I've started doing is weekly highlight reels of some of the videos that have gone out on YouTube that would be of interest to the podcast listeners as well. So thanks for listening. And you can also, like I said, go over and join me on YouTube, History and Coffee, and search for Heather. And there I am. So let's get right into it. Today, we are talking about Tudor spies, spies at the Tudor court, 007, all of that kind of good stuff. I first kind of got interested in this idea with Petrus Alamiri, and we're going to talk about him. He was a musician, and he also got into trouble because he was suspected of spying. He was like a double agent, and we're going to talk about it in a minute. And anyway, hearing about that just kind of made me really interested. And then also members of this channel, if you join this channel, you get extra episodes. And this past week, there was an episode for members on Gertrude Courtney, who was a spy as well. And so it just kind of got me interested in spies. And I thought I would do a video on spies, the Tudor court. And then, of course, there were a lot of spies associated with Mary, Queen of Scots and you know, getting her letters out. So we're just going to kind of briefly, generally go over some of these spies in Tudor England. Let's hop right into it. So Tudor England, this was a period when spying was not just a shadowy game, but a crucial part of political strategy, like it probably is today, too, to be honest. Um, involving a network of unlikely characters whose actions influence the course of history, from ciphered letters hidden in music sheets to covert meetings in candlelit corridors. Tudor spies operated in a world where nothing was as it seemed. Everyone had something to hide. So we are going to uncover some stories of some of these elusive figures whose lives were shrouded in mystery and whose legacies still intrigue us today. The first person we're going to talk about is Petrus Alamiri. So there's an amazing music group in England called Alamiri, named after Petrus Alamiri. It's led by David... I have to sneeze. <laughs> we'll see what happens. It's led by David Skinner, who I interviewed on this show 
nine years ago. It was actually my first in-person interview. I love this story because like I was so befuddled. I was so nervous. I went to see him in uh, Cambridge in his office. I totally fangirled the whole time. It was the most awkward interview because I was just like so busy just listening. So I was like, oh, wow. Oh, I need to ask you a question. And then I got done with the whole thing. And I was really worried that I had like it was the first time I'd recorded anything in person like that. And I was really worried that like the sound was going to be horrible. So I ran to the Costa Coffee uh, in the square in Cambridge and I like put on my headphones and I was so panicky because I thought, what am I going to do if like it didn't show up or if it didn't record properly? But it did. And that was my first interview. So David Skinner, Petra Salamiri, it all comes back to music. All right, let's continue. Clearly, I've had my two cups of coffee today. so. Our first master of intrigue is Petra Salamiri, a name that resonates not just with espionage, but also with music. Salamiri was a renowned music composer, a printer of music, but his melodies masked a darker tune. He was also a spy, weaving a web of intelligence in Tudor England. Born Peter Imhoff in the Holy Roman Empire, Salamiri found himself in England where his musical talents caught the attention of the court. However, beneath this facade of a musician, he was also an agent for Henry VIII's rivals, including Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and also for the De La Pole family. And we've done episodes on the De La Poles as well, who had, you know, rival claim to the throne. Alamary's unique position allowed him to move seamlessly among the high and mighty. It was a common job for spies to also be musicians because you could travel from place to place really easily. Nobody questioned it. Uh, you could move across borders, everything like that. His music scores possibly carried coded messages across borders. His dual life represents a complex interplay of art and espionage, showing how cultural pursuits could serve as the perfect cover for political intrigue in the Tudor period. Next, we're going to talk about Thomas Phillips. He was a master of codes and ciphers, a linguist and an expert cryptanalyst. He was a key player in Elizabethan intelligence. His skills were essential in an era where a single deciphered message could change the course of history. His most famous contribution was during the Babington Plot, the 1586 conspiracy to assassinate Queen Elizabeth I and place Mary Queen of Scots on the English throne. As a spy working for Sir Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth's principal secretary and spymaster, he intercepted letters to Mary. With meticulous skill, he deciphered the encrypted messages, unveiling the plot and leading directly to the execution of Mary and her conspirators. His method of breaking the cipher, which involved recognizing patterns and symbols in the encoded messages, was groundbreaking. The significance of Philippe's work extends beyond the Babington plot. His techniques in cryptanalysis laid the foundation for future code-breaking methods. In an age when information was power, Philippe's ability to unlock secrets from scrambled texts was a formidable weapon. His legacy is not just in the annals of Tudor espionage, but also in the evolution of intelligence gathering and cryptanalysis, impacting how secret communications were understood and intercepted for centuries to come. Now we're going to move to Europe and talk about Anthony Standen, who was an English spy who operated primarily in Italy, gathering intelligence for Elizabeth I. His work involved mingling with influential figures, leveraging his position to gain insights into European politics and movements of Elizabeth's adversaries. His career as a spy, however, was marked by peril and betrayal, as spy careers often are. He was captured and imprisoned, enduring the harsh realities faced by spies caught behind enemy lines. 
Despite the setback, his loyalty to England remained unshaken. His eventual return to England was a testament to his resilience and commitment to his cause. Anthony Stanton was born in England in the late 1540s, um, maybe around 1548, and he was born into a very strong Catholic family. Uh, he was an accomplished linguist, which made him an invaluable intelligence asset for Queen Elizabeth I. So he was an English Catholic exile who had moved to Italy, and he was recruited by Sir Francis Walsingham to become a spy. And the intelligence that he sent back actually played a very crucial role in understanding Philip II's uh, preparations for war and for the Armada invasion. When he was imprisoned, he actually pretended to switch allegiance, which is something that was probably authorized by the English crown to feed misinformation to the Spanish. So that happened, and that was partially how he got freed and was able to come back to England. So I want to take a break for a minute here to show you this little tiny book, the Tudor Activity Book, Field of Cloth of Gold Edition. So I put out these little activity books. Um, you can buy them on Amazon with puzzles and word searches and stuff like that having to do with Tudor history. And this one was all about the Field of Cloth of Gold. I did it in 2020. I just thought I would mention it to you that you can get it on Amazon. I've got another one coming out later this month that I've been working on. So that will be fun. But this one is all about the Field of Cloth of Gold, like I said. And it's got like mazes and uh, coloring pages, word searches of words that have to do with the field of cloth of gold. So like this is one on the English attendants. These are some of the noblemen listed as being the attendants. And so you have to find their names or the French attendants. And then we've got like crossword puzzles, location, location, location. So this is about all of the different locations and structures of the field of cloth of gold. This one's first impressions and it's about how the English and French saw each other. So it's a cool way to dig in and learn a little bit more about um, the field of cloth of gold. And then, of course, all the solutions are there, too, so you can see everything. So I put these up on Amazon, Tutor Activity Book. If you do a search for my name, Tutor Activity Book, you'll find it. Tutor Activity Book. Get it on Amazon. Super cool. All right. Add over. Now let's talk about the Elizabethan Watchers. In the intricate tapestry of Tudor espionage, a lesser known but crucial thread was the network of Elizabethan watchers. These informants, often overlooked in the grand narratives of history, played a pivotal role in the security of Elizabeth's reign. The watchers were a diverse group ranging from tavern keepers to priests who kept their ears close to the ground and their eyes wide open. One notable watcher was Arthur Gregory, an expert in intercepting and decoding letters. He was particularly active during the Babington plot, working with Phillips, using his skills to unravel the conspiracy against Elizabeth. Another key figure was Richard Young, a magistrate who utilized his position to gather information about Catholics and potential plots against the crown. These individuals, though not as celebrated as spymasters like Walsingham, were the backbone of the Tudor intelligence network, and their contributions were vital in maintaining the stability and security of Elizabeth's reign. Their roles were multifaceted, from tracking the movements of foreign diplomats to sniffing out sedition in the streets of London. The Watchers operated in the shadows, blending into everyday life, making them effective and inconspicuous gatherers of information. Their work, though less glamorous than that of high-profile spies, was essential in weaving the vast network of intelligence that kept Elizabeth I informed and ultimately in power. Now let's go back in time to Henry VIII's court and talk about Sir Anthony Brown, a figure emblematic of the intertwining of courtly duties and clandestine activities. Brown was a courtier and diplomat, served Henry VIII in various capacities, including Master of the Horse and as an ambassador. 
when Brown's prime, while Brown's prime, blah, 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 while Brian, <laughs> I can talk, while Brown's primary roles, say that 10 times fast, while Brown's primary roles, while Brown's primary roles, can't do it. While Brown's primary roles were of diplomatic and administrative nature, his position in Henry's inner circle placed him in the ideal situation to engage in espionage. He was often involved in sensitive diplomatic missions, such as negotiating with the French or dealing with matters concerning the English Reformation. These missions, inherently political and delicate, likely involved gathering intelligence for the king. His diplomatic trips abroad and his access to foreign dignitaries and courts provided him opportunities to collect information crucial for Henry's decision-making. His loyalty and his close relationship with the king also suggest that he may have been involved in reporting the shifting allegiances and sentiments in the European courts directly to Henry, especially during the time of the Reformation. Sir Anthony Brown's story highlights the role of high-ranking courtiers in Tudor espionage, not as shadowy figures lurking in the alleys, but as influential individuals whose diplomatic missions were laced with the silent tasks of gathering intelligence. His involvement in espionage, though not overtly documented like that of professional spies, reflects the nuanced ways that intelligence was gathered and utilized in the political machinations of the Tudor court. Then we're also going to talk about John Dee, who is I've done episodes on, I've done blog posts on. John Dee, I love him, the original 007. His name is synonymous with mysticism and learning in the Tudor era. He had Europe's largest library at one point, and he also spent time hunting for the Sorcerer's Stone, because why not? Actually, I say the Sorcerer's Stone. My shirt that I have on, I didn't plan this, is a quote by Hermione Granger. When in doubt, go to the library. See, and then it says, it says Hermione Granger on there. Anyway, so Sorcerer's Stone, 007, John D., Hermione. There you go. Library. It all comes full circle. <laughs> His, guys, I'm having too much fun. I'm having too much fun. He was an extraordinary figure uh, whose life straddled the realms of science and the supernatural. I love this period because this is getting really off topic because it's this time when science and mysticism and spirituality were still linked. After the Enlightenment, you know, we put science on this side and spirituality on this side. And we think we're so clever because we have like answers to things. I've heard one time it was... I think it was a, a priest said that after the Enlightenment, we started to think that we were owed explanations for things. Whereas before the Enlightenment, people accepted stories and people accepted, you know, that you just didn't understand some things or there was more to it or there was, you know, stuff that you were never going to be able to comprehend. And in post-Enlightenment, post-Industrial Revolution, when the world makes sense, um, we tend to think that we're owed explanations and things are supposed to mean making sense. And so we're less likely to just understand that there are some things we need to understand only by faith. And now Heather gets really quiet. But I love this idea. That, and I mean, that's not necessarily fair to a lot of physicists and, and scientists today that have faith and, and everything. But society wise, that's like a, an overarching kind of generalization about society and before the Enlightenment, people were much more likely to dabble in the occult and spirituality and different things like that, trying to look for the Sorcerer's Stone while you also had Europe's largest private library. Um, it is what it is. Let's talk about him as a spy, right? John Dee was a mathematician, astronomer, and occultist. He was a polymath who mesmerized the courts of Europe with his knowledge and charisma. But beyond his public persona, he had a lesser known role, which was a spy. 
He traveled across Europe under the patronage of Elizabeth I, not just with scholarly pursuits, although that's what they were cloaked as, uh, but they were actually spy spy trips. With his extensive knowledge and connections, Dee was well-placed to gather intelligence on the scientific and political developments of the time. He frequented the courts of Europe's most powerful rulers, engaging with fellow intellectuals and dabbling in alchemical and astronomical studies. These interactions provided him with the perfect cover to observe and relay back information crucial to Queen Elizabeth. It's speculated that his scholarly pursuits, particularly in navigation and cartography, were intertwined with his espionage activities. His work in these fields was vital to the expansion of English maritime power. It's likely that his gathering of geographic and scientific data also served the interests of Elizabeth's statecraft. Dee's life was shrouded in mystery and intrigue and exemplifies the unique blend of knowledge and espionage in the service of national interest during Elizabeth's reign. There's actually a series of books. I'm going to have to search for it now. Um, historical mysteries that feature John Dee. Oh, this is what it is. It's a, The Angels of the Crown. It's by Oliver Clement. Agents of the Crown novel starts with the eyes of the queen. Now we're going to finally talk about economic espionage and Thomas Gresham. Thomas Gresham stands out as a pivotal figure in the economic landscape of Tudor England. I've also done episodes on him. He built England's first shopping mall, which I think is super cool. Um, but he was also a covert operative. His story is one of financial acumen intertwined with the subtleties of espionage. He was stationed in Antwerp, the financial hub of Europe, and he was ideally positioned to play a dual role. As a royal agent and financial expert, he manipulated the bond market to stabilize the volatile English economy. However, his position in Antwerp also allowed him to engage in economic espionage, gathering information on the financial practices and policies of England's European counterparts. His intelligence gathering was crucial during a time when economic power was as vital as military might. His reports on the economic health and strategies of other nations helped shape England's financial policies, providing a significant advantage in the complex game of Renaissance geopolitics. His crowning achievement, though, was the establishment of the Royal Exchange in London, not just a financial milestone, but also a subtle tool in England's intelligence network. The exchange became a center for merchants and traders, a place where information flowed freely as currency. Gresham's vision in creating this hub was not just economic, but also strategic, as it allowed England to better monitor commercial activities and gather economic intelligence. Today, we are doing another Tudor portraits and propaganda, uh, exploring one of the most captivating masterpieces of the Elizabethan era, the Pelican portrait of Queen Elizabeth I. This is a remarkable piece of art. It currently lives in the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool, and it is a testament to the grandeur and complexity of Elizabethan England and all of the propaganda that Elizabeth was such a master of using. It's named for the distinctive pelican pendant that Elizabeth is wearing, symbolizing self-sacrifice and maternal care. This portrait is much more than a mere depiction. It is a mix of symbols and meanings that reflect the heart of Elizabeth's reign. This portrait was painted around 1575 by Nicholas Hilliard, who, of course, was a famous portrait painter in Elizabeth's court. He was born around 1547. He was not just an artist, but also a goldsmith by training, and his unique style blended the meticulous detail of a jeweler with the grandeur of Tudor court. It's one reason why he was so good at painting miniatures. 
He captured the essence of the era in each brushstroke. Even though he was renowned for his miniatures, he also excelled in larger portraits like this one, where his skill in portraying regal splendor and intricate symbolism truly shines. So this was a time when Elizabeth, who was around 42, was well-established on her throne, like I said, 1575, yet she was still navigating some complexities of her reign. Of course, her reign was marked by religious and political challenges, with Elizabeth skillfully steering England through the tumultuous waters of the Protestant Reformation and maintaining a delicate balance of power in Europe. The creation of the Pelican portrait during this period is particularly significant. It wasn't just a royal commission, it was a political statement, a testament to Elizabeth's resilience and her role as a benevolent, almost divine leader of her nation. The portrait is rich in symbolism and regal bearing, reinforces her image as a powerful yet caring monarch, akin to a mother nurturing her children. And of course, her children were the English people. It was originally in Charlton House in Wiltshire. The portrait was a part of the collection of the Earls of Suffolk, of course, a prominent noble family of the time. Its presence there speaks volumes about the prestige and reverence held for Elizabeth and her image. The journey of this masterpiece from the halls of Charlton House to its current home in the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool mirrors the enduring legacy of Elizabeth's reign. By the time that the portrait reached the art gallery in 1945, donated by E. Peter Jones, it had become not just an artifact of the past, but a beacon of Elizabethan history, offering viewers a window into an era of intrigue, power, and unparalleled royal splendor. Embursed in the Pelican portrait is a labyrinth of symbols, each unfolding layers of Elizabeth's identity and the perceptions she inspired as a monarch. Central to this is the Pelican pendant, an emblem laden with deep meaning. In Elizabethan symbolism, the Pelican was revered for its maternal self-sacrifice, believed to feed its young with its own blood. This emblem resonates with the portrayal of Elizabeth as the selfless mother of the nation, nurturing and protecting her subjects with a similar devotion. Equally symbolic are the pearls that Elizabeth is wearing, shimmering with the glow of chastity. These pearls represented the Virgin Queen. In a time when a monarch's virtue was as significant as their lineage, these pearls were not just ornaments, but declarations of Elizabeth's purity and moral fortitude. This is right at the height of her affair with Dudley, when Robert Dudley was getting ready to woo her for that two-week holiday at Kenilworth, and wearing these portraits, also alongside with the two cherries near her ear, reinforce her status as the Virgin Queen. She's saying, I'm not getting married. I'm not having an affair with Dudley. I'm not secretly married. None of that. I am the Virgin Queen, and I am the mother to the nation. The Tudor rose and the fleur-de-lis within the portrait carry their own weight in symbolism. The rose celebrates her dynasty, the unification of York and Lancaster, while the fleur-de-lis asserts her ancestral claim to the throne of France, a subtle nod to England's historical ambitions. Above everything, a fringed canopy subtly suggests a throne room, placing Elizabeth not just in a space of regal authority, but also within a realm of divine right and celestial mandate. These symbols collectively weave a narrative of power, purity, and providence, epitomizing the complex and multifaceted nature of Elizabeth's reign. Hilliard's style was characterized by intricate detail and a rich palette, and brought an almost ethereal quality to Elizabeth's portrayal. 
Unlike his renowned miniatures, which are marvels of precision, this larger canvas allowed Hilliard to lavish attention on a grander scale of opulence and symbolism. Hilliard's skill in balancing realism with symbolism sets the pelican portrait apart from his miniatures. While the miniatures focus on intimate details and facial expressions, this portrait encapsulates the grandeur of Elizabeth's reign, her royal majesty, and the symbolic depth of her public image. In this, Hilliard transcends the boundaries of traditional portraiture, creating a piece that is as much a political statement as it is an artistic masterpiece. So the provenance of the painting starts with a story from the Howard family, which claimed that the portrait was a personal gift from Elizabeth herself. This narrative adds a romantic hue to the provenance, but there is a lack of concrete evidence that lends an air of mystery to its origins. By 1945, like I said, it was donated to the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool. It had been in the possession of the Earls of Suffolk, a lineage steeped in nobility and close to the Tudor court. So there we have it. The Pelican Portrait is not just a visual feast. It's a historical document that played a pivotal role in shaping the public image of Elizabeth. In this masterpiece, Nicholas Hilliard masterfully blended realism with rich symbolism, creating a portrait that was more than a likeness. It was a narrative. This portrait encapsulated Elizabeth's persona as the Virgin Queen, a wise ruler and a maternal figure to her nation, embedding these roles in the public consciousness. Hilliard's work, especially this portrait, mirrors the Elizabethan era's complexities, its intrigue, its opulence, and its political subtleties. Thanks so much for listening to this week's YouTube highlights. Remember, you can go over and subscribe. History and Coffee, Heather Tesco, you will find me there. And we'll be back again next week with more highlights from what went out on YouTube throughout the week. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Blow, northern wind, ascend for baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today, we talk brainstorms with UX designer Brian. Let's go. First question. You thought you'd see everyone's idea in the team brainstorm, but you've got a grand total of one. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, right? Because in Miro, the team can add ideas now or later. And with privacy mode, we can keep them anonymous until they're good to share. Correct. Next, you need the best way to explain your idea, but all you have is a few sticky notes. Drawing board or Miro board? Drawing board, because, you know, in Miro, I could record videos, add text, images, links, and digital sticky notes, of course, present my thoughts the way I want. Right again. Now, you're looking for a past idea you thought was just genius. Only you could find... Oh. There it is. Drawing board or Miro. Our finished and unfinished work lives in one place. And he's one. Join over 60 million people getting ideas noticed in Miro Brainstorms. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.